Today's reading will be taken from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it will be introduced by Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, which can be, and then we'll continue in Luke 22. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke 22, starting at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is God's word. Thanks, Liz. Uh, Good morning, good morning, one and all. If we've not met, my name's uh, Matt, Matt Fuller. And if uh, you are joining us, it's just a one-off today, really. Um, We'll break our slightly normal habits uh, we'll, we'll work our way through a book of the Bible, uh, chunk by chunk, uh, and really go from the Bible and apply it into our uh, world and our lives today. Just uh, one off, uh, we do this from time to time, an, an honest question. So once as we start with a question that sometimes people ask and go back to the Bible, so we slightly turn uh, our method on its head. And we're going to think a little bit this morning about this question, can I trust Jesus? Let me pray, uh, and then we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you. You don't want to leave us in doubt that trusting in your Son not only makes sense, but is the most wonderful thing we can do. It's the most important decision we need to make with our lives. It brings delight to you and enormous good to us, would you deepen, strengthen, begin even our trust in Jesus again this morning we pray. Amen. Now the sociologists would tell you that apparently in the 21st century we have trust issues. Uh, We find it hard to trust people, harder than perhaps uh, it was formerly the case. Uh, Every year Ipsos Mori publishes the Veracity Index. Um, which is essentially how trustworthy we find different professions. So it takes, uh, I think it's 30 different professions uh, and sort of ranks them. Do you trust a medic? Do you trust a politician? Do you trust a lawyer? Do you, and, 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 uh, and every year, every profession drops a little bit. So we're just generally trusting people less and less. But out of interest, would you like to know the least trusted professions in the UK? Oh, Yes. Uh, until they're one of ours, but uh, the least trusted profession, only 21% of people would trust a politician. The least trusted profession in the UK. Which in one sense is tragic, isn't it? But anyway, there we go. 21%. Uh, 
just above them, I guess, uh, estate agents. So more people would trust an estate agent than a politician. 24% would trust an estate agent. Just above them, journalists, 25%. Staggering, isn't it? Politicians, journalists, so important in our public society, our discourse, holding together... And yet, less than a quarter of the UK will trust them. Oh dear. Uh, I don't suppose I can smile too much. I'll do a little bit better as a clergyman. 67% of people trust clergymen, tied with policemen, quite happy with that. But um, uh, one place slower than hairdressers. (laughs) What do you do? Uh, Would you like to know the most trusted, uh, most trusted profession in the UK? Doctors, we salute you, that is you. Uh, 89% of the doctors, not the ones in this, no. The... um, 89% of doctors, percent of people trust doctors, 86% would trust teachers, 80% judges. Those are the top three. So they do all right. But broadly, trust levels go down year on year. And I guess in an age of mass marketing where we think on the internet, oh, look, that looks like a nice place to go on holiday. Let me just check TripAdvisor. Oops. Uh, That looks like a nice restaurant. Let me check the reviews. Oops. We don't take anyone on face value. We have to check them out. But nothing makes us, I guess, as cynical as being lied to personally. That winds us up. We've got trust issues, but you do have to trust someone. And we do. We manage to trust various people. We trust the fact that when money goes into our bank account, our banks don't steal it for themselves. Well, not yeah, there's the small print, of course. But, you know, don't, don't just take uh, our salary and uh, nick it for themselves. We trust people. We trust our friends with secrets. Uh, of course, if those are betrayed, that is particularly painful. You have to trust someone. You have to trust people. But what we're really talking about here is, what about the most important decisions of life? Who do you trust to tell you what the purpose of life is. What happens when you die? How do you live a good life? And of course, I want to say to you this morning, you can trust Jesus. Fundamentally, with your life, with your death, that he'll take you into the next life. But how do you make decisions about whether someone is trustworthy or not? Uh, I guess there's a whole number of things. Let me put it in these terms. If you were, uh, if you're uh, going to employ someone, you're looking to recruit and you're interviewing, uh, how might you go about making decision whether you can trust someone? Well, presumably a bit like this. You'd want to know a bit about their history. So you'd look through their CV. What have they done? Um, what have they achieved? Does it all stack up? Why are there two years missing? Why have you not declared them? You know, you want to look a little bit at their history, whether you can trust someone. I guess their knowledge, depending on what specific job you're interviewing them for, there's going to be some technical questions, some professionally specific questions. You know, oh, so you're coming to be a doctor. Do you know which bone connects to the which bone, uh, etc.? You know, you'd want to ask something about basic knowledge in an interview, of course. And then their character mostly why you take up references. Uh, 
this person, that they look great on paper. Yes, can I just tell you, if you insert them into your team, they are a bomb who will destroy everyone. Oh, that's quite useful to know. These are useful things. But I guess something like that, a little bit about their history, their knowledge, and their character. I guess if you're entering into a serious relationship as marriage, it might be something similar. What have you done? What do you value uh, in life? What's the character like? So look, that's what I'm going to go and try and build a case. Of course, it's only simplistic in half an hour or so. But just when people come to this issue of, well, Jesus, is he real? Can I trust him? Let's just look at his knowledge, or rather this order, his history, his knowledge, and his character. Very brief, just an introduction, but we're going to look at these three. Let's spend some time thinking about Jesus' history. I don't know where you are in your Bibles, but do turn to Luke chapter 1. It's on page 1025. Luke chapter 1, and uh, Luke then, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the four biographies we've got, and he begins it by being very clear about what he's trying to do. So he would write, chapter 1, verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know for the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, according to the most recent research, 40% of the UK population don't realize that Jesus was a real historical figure. So 40% would put Jesus in the box with Robin Hood, Merlin, the wizard, etc. 40%, just a sort of myth. Uh, That is a terrible historical confusion. There There is an uncontested fact that the man Jesus walked this planet in the first century. And that is what Luke is just establishing just as he begins his biography. Three little questions, just of Luke 1, 1 to 4. Uh, what's he writing? When's he writing it? Why is he writing it? What's he writing? He's writing, verse 1, an account. Or verse 3, an orderly account. Luke is claiming it's history. So he doesn't, as uh, some cultures would do, begin his account by saying, centuries ago, in the dream time, this took place. He, what? What does that mean? When even is that? What is that world? But it's not claiming to be real. It's sort of a world of myths that produces stories. He doesn't begin his account a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which says, this isn't real. It's just out there somewhere. No, he says, I'm writing you an orderly account. I'm going to tell you about events that took place between 30 and 33 AD. I'm going to tell you exactly where they took place. So Luke mentions 54 cities, 32 regions, nine islands. They're all there. All the people he mentions are there. They're real. What is he writing? It's an orderly account of history. Again, of importance, when is he writing it? At the time. So he can say, verse 1, I'm writing about the things fulfilled among us. And I've consulted, verse 2, the eyewitnesses. So he is writing contemporaneous history at the time. And it's quite hard to get away with big whoppers at the time. Theresa May this week to stand up and say, 
we have a budget surplus of 300 billion. That's quite a big whopper. And straight away, someone would stand up and say, mm, no, and here's the evidence to disprove you. To, to come up with things at the time, which can easily be disproved, you, you can't make stuff up. Or let me put it in different terms. If we didn't have the Bible, what would we know about Jesus? Well, let me, you may not be able to read it, but let me throw up a little table. Here are just some of the things from extra biblical sources. You would know that there was a man called Jesus. You'd know the place and time frame of his public ministry, Palestine, 86 to 36. You'd know the name of his mother, Mary. You'd know there was something ambiguous about his birth. You'd know the name of at least one of his brothers, James. You'd know of his fame as a teacher and miracle worker. You'd know that people called him Christ or Messiah. You'd know the time and manner of his death, crucifixion, at Jewish Passover, you'd know that the Roman and Jewish leaderships were both colluded and were involved in his death. You'd know that there was this bizarre eclipse, this darkness at the time of his death. You'd know that there were plenty of reports that Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. You'd know that this movement that worshipped Jesus arose immediately afterwards. You'd know all that without the Bible. In other words, it, it is an uncontested fact that this man walked across history. Some will, of course, still say, oh, there was no Jesus. Yeah, but come on, some people say anything. I could stand before you this morning and say, yeah, I've read a few books of medicine and biology over the last fortnight, and I've decided that the human brain is actually a cauliflower. I don't see how people haven't spotted it before. It's just a sort of advanced cauliflower. That's what the human brain is. And you might say to me, that's interesting. Do you have any qualifications at all to talk about this? No. Have you found anyone who is a doctor or has got GCSE biology to agree with you in this? No. I have started a web page and a thousand people agree with me. Well done. Well done. <laughs> you can do that for anything. So when in occasion, oh, there are people who don't think that Jesus existed. Yeah. And their people and their, their quality of complaint is about the same level as the human brain is a cauliflower. There is not a professional historian on this planet who will deny that Jesus walked history. Why is Luke writing this? He's very clear. Chapter 1, verse 4. So you may know the certainty of the things you believe. I don't want you to be in any doubt. It matters. And dare I suggest, it, it matters more for the Christian faith than any other sort of worldview. Because Christianity is Jesus. There is nothing without him. Presumably, if in the midst of time there'd been no Buddha... Uh, someone else could have dreamt up the, the sort of philosophy of, of, of Buddhism and, uh, and claims to have reached nirvana and you follow this path of enlightenment. Presumably someone else could have done it. Uh, could have been, um, I don't know, Sheila. Uh, and so you'd have Sheilaism instead of Buddhism. You know, presumably that, that could have happened in, in, the, in that way. Presumably if um, there'd been no Muhammad, uh, Allah could have, uh, on the assumption there was an Allah, he could have given his vision to someone else didn't have to be Muhammad. But Christianity is Jesus. That's why you have to know this. There's nothing without him. So Luke wants you to be certain. The Bible wants you to be certain. 
It's all about him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return. You can trust his history. People try and throw dust in the air and say, oh, was there really a... No one credible can do that. Trust his history. Uh, Let's move on. You can secondly, though, you can trust his knowledge. Perhaps values is a better term, but trust his knowledge. I think I have more conversations which go along the lines like this. Okay, look, as soon as you look at Jesus, you realize he's a real figure of history. But I just can't take him seriously when he's so out of touch with the modern world. I think is a more common observation. I can't believe some of the things he says. Jesus and the Bible, they're from a different culture. We've just moved on since then. Well, it's not that hard to understand, I think. All all of us are aware that fashions change. We're all aware of that in the world of clothing fashion. And we look at what people were wearing 30 years ago and think, ha, 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 ha. Uh, And we look at what we ourselves were perhaps wearing 10 years ago and go, and uh, find it a little bit embarrassing that what we thought was cool then looks a little bit naff now. But moral fashions change too. What there may be a, 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 a clear moral consensus of in one generation, 30 years later, can look odd. Take a really strong example. Uh, a friend of mine at the end of the summer said, oh, I finally got round to reading all the way through War and Peace. You know, I've started a few times, but I actually persevered and, and got to the end, like everyone here would have done. And uh, he commented, it is just striking some of the cultural differences. Obviously, it's 200 years difference. But um, war, war and Peace, killing someone in a duel, that's fine. It's fine. You and I could just agree now. We'd take our swords, maybe our pistols, uh, out into the street, and uh, one would kill the other, and that's fine. And the police wouldn't get involved, and it would be viewed as a moral thing, an honourable thing. Not so these days, in a case of doubt. Uh, 200 years ago, you know, if you were an aristocrat, you would have had staff, and entirely reasonable and normal if you were irritated to hit them. Well, employment legislation has changed, and uh, don't try that one these days. He said, but then you turn it around a little bit, um, back then, 200 years ago, if you publicly lied, that is death, socially. Honesty mattered. Whereas today, you can say, oh, well, if we leave the EU, we'll get an extra £350 million a week. <laughs> That's obviously not true, is it? <laughs> and you just carry on in public office. And everyone goes, he's lied. But he goes, <laughs> and you just carry on. Well, it's just different, isn't it? Back then, to lie publicly, that's it. You're out. Society would not tolerate you. Just differences, culturally. Or again, he said, it just struck me, back then, in the war and peace 200 years ago, adultery, fine. If you're not committing adultery, how quaint. These days, for all our permissiveness, adultery is still broadly, I would say, immorally a no-no. It's betrayal. Back then, sex before marriage. (gasps) Now, well, again, moral consensus is, of course, why wouldn't you? Is one better than another, would you say? Is it better to say sex before marriage, great, adultery, bad, or 
Which is better? I'm not asking you to comment, really. I'm just saying these fashions, morally, fashions shift over time. So I wonder, just in, within a generation, what will appear ridiculous to us? But don't just ignore Jesus or reject him because he happens to clash with your worldview on one issue now. Don't reject Jesus because for an issue that in 30 years' time you won't believe anymore. That would be madness. Let me give you a, a negative example, perhaps, and a positive one. If Jesus is God, then what he speaks is true, and what he says about the morals are timelessly true. And then until you get a perfect culture, he's always going to clash up with every culture at some point. Let me give you perhaps a positive example, first of all. He'll be a positive one. Um, the middle of the 18th century onwards, those who opposed slavery, there's not a huge deal of debate on this. It was the Christians initially. Because the culture said, we have a right to slaves. It's our moral right. And it was the Christians who said, not universally, though, but the Christians saying, um, hold on a minute, that we read our Bibles and think that's not okay. So here's one non-Christian, so he's got no axe to grind in the same way I might, uh, historian, puts it this way, I might even give you the quote. Uh, he's Rodney Stark, for what it's worth. Um, you can read his book all about the end of slavery. But a virtual who's who of Enlightenment figures fully accepted slavery. It was not philosophers or secular intellectuals who assembled the moral indictment of slavery, but the very people they held in such contempt, men and women having intense Christian faith who opposed slavery because it was sin. He goes on to say, the larger point is that pro-slavery rhetoric was secular overwhelmingly, References were made to liberty. We must have, be free to have slaves. States' rights. Don't you insist upon, don't you crush us from the center. Whereas the Christians use the language of sin. It's morally wrong. Salvation. Do you see his point? He's saying only the Christians would read the Bible and then look at the world and say, no, you mustn't do that. Those who were embedded in their culture had no ability to see what was wrong, their moral flaws at that time. So, of course, most of us would look back upon that and say, well, thank goodness. Thank goodness there was a, there was a voice from outside of culture to speak into it and say, stop that. And we all say, good, we like that. That would be a positive example. Uh, what about a negative one? if we can put it in those terms. Okay, look, in the 21st century, what Jesus says about marriage and what the culture says are very different. I don't want to get into every debate. Let me keep it simple. Jesus says, sex is for within a permanent marriage between two people. And the world says, no, 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 sex is just recreational, and you get married, and you get out of marriage, and you divorce, and you get back in, you marry several times, you leave several times, and that's all okay. That's a very clear difference between the two, obviously. Now, but in the course, in the 21st century, what matters most of all is the individual. So I think the, the great moral rules of the 21st century, thou shalt be true to yourself. 
thou shalt not offend anyone else for their lifestyle. Thou shalt have consent before any liaison, physically. But those are sort of the great morals, it seems to me, of certainly London, the 21st century. Thou must be true to yourself. Thou shalt not criticise or offend anyone else for their views, lifestyle, behaviour, beliefs. Have safe spaces, for goodness sake. But thou must have consent before you do anything relationally. And so what you have is people will be married and get a bit grumpy with their marriage and say, well, I want a divorce. I'm bored of this man. I'm bored of this woman. And the great values of society are, I must be true to myself. I must be. That is the most important thing. Therefore, I will get a divorce. Which, of course, Jesus would say, no, don't do that. Marriage is lifelong union. And once you've committed, you work at it. And it will be hard, but you get the other side of working through, and it may well be even better, richer, deeper, truer. That's an obvious clash. But he might be right, you know. And marriage and sexuality is an issue where moral fashion will keep on changing its mind. And so today, the moral consensus on polygamy is no. I think if you ask most people, any, any poll at the moment says, oh, no, polygamy, no. Why not, given the spirit of the age? I have little doubt in 25 years it'll be the norm, because if the great moral values are, thou shalt be true to yourself, thou shalt not criticize anyone else's lifestyle, and thou must have consent. Well, if you have someone saying, I need to be true to myself, I need to be married to more than one person to be satisfied. Don't you criticize me for my polygamous views. Don't you dare. How antiquated of you to say just two people in a marriage. And we have consent. So what's wrong with it? And that's where we'll be in 25 years' time. And the children of the people in this room perhaps will look upon us if we disagree and say, you old fuddy-duddies. Because moral fashions change over time. And some we're really grateful they have, and some we're not. And sometimes we think how wonderful that the Bible criticizes our culture, and sometimes we find it unnerving. But don't reject Jesus because he disagrees with you. You may not hold the same opinion in a generation. You can trust his knowledge. Lastly, would you turn on with me to... um, Chapter 22, because I want to say you can trust Jesus' character as well. And there are a million places we could go uh, throughout any of the accounts of Jesus' life and Luke's gospel, but I just want to dwell upon here, upon one little instant here as Jesus prays. Trust his character. Look, integrity matters. I grew up in a non-Christian family. I grew up assuming that uh, Christianity was all a fairy tale. That's what people told me. So I didn't get round to reading an account of Jesus' life until I was an adult. And I read Luke's gospel and thought, oh, oh, he's quite impressive, this Jesus. He says, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, be a good Samaritan. Everything he teaches, he does. There's an utter consistency to his life. And of course, someone's character is revealed under pressure. So I turn here in Luke 22, because here is Jesus under pressure. Let me read uh, 
Just from verse 41. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples. He knelt down and prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I need to do a little bit of explanation for you here. Jesus' prayer, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. It's not a cup of tea he's about to spill. It's very clear from the Bible, this cup with its Old Testament background is, it's a metaphor. It's the cup of God's judgment. It's the cup of God's punishment for all that is wrong in this world. God is going to pour out his judgment upon every evil thing, thought that anyone has ever done upon Christ, on him. Of course, you and I, we have a bit of a problem with God being angry. That's because we're in the 21st century. We don't like that idea. But a God who loves his people, his creatures, of course, he's going to get angry with their mistreatment. Let me put it in these terms. Uh, this is far from perfect as an illustration, but I had a very good relationship. I'd say a great relationship uh, with my father, who is now dead. Um, if I messed things up, if I messed up at school and got in trouble, a little issue at school, we'd talk about it and talk about how things were going to be different. If there was an accident at home and I broke things, I think of breaking a door at home, the dining room door through mischief. Not deliberate, but he would never get angry over those things. He would just look and say, be honest, how did it happen? I'd explain and be honest and say, okay. I think we both know that was a bit daft. Yes, we recognize that was daft. Okay, how are we going to fix it? He was quite placid most of the time on things like that. But if I was rude to my mother, if I disobeyed my mother, if I failed to follow instructions of my mother, well, that was different. He let me know he was angry and that that was unacceptable in the household. And he was a man of a generation and his anger may have involved a slipper or two odd upon occasion. Uh, but that's... Did he love me? No. Less? No. But at that moment, his love for his wife and indeed his son, manifested itself in punishment. I'd overstepped the mark. I'd gone beyond what was acceptable. He loved me, but he wouldn't permit my rebellion, my offensiveness, to go unaddressed. And God is a good father. He loves his creation, but he will not permit evil deeds, rebellion, to go unpunished. And Jesus knows he's about to take into himself punishment for all that's gone wrong, all that every individual has done wrong. That's a, that's a big deal, to put it in mild terms. Some of us who are parents, occasionally when our kids were very, very small, you know, the, 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 you know, the first year, they'd have a cold. And, be, and, and when they'd sort of cough, their whole body goes, <coughs> you know, and it's just sort of very dramatic in a small one. And we'd all find ourselves thinking, all right, if I could, I'd take that cold for you. I would take it because, you know, I'm bigger and stronger. I could take it and absorb it. I'd love you not to endure that. We could do that, perhaps. But what Jesus is going to do here, and what none of us could do, is to take upon himself, as it were, every illness. 
we can take into ourselves every cancer, every Ebola, so that organs collapse and bleed to death multiple times, every Alzheimer, every malaria, every typhoid, every HIV, to take into one person, impossible. Jesus is about to take into himself or upon himself the punishment for billions throughout history, throughout the world. No one who is just a man could do that, would do that. And so here is a moment of extraordinary stress. That's why we're told, verse 44, his sweat is like drops of blood. Medically, you're in a bad way. Possible, but God, you're enduring extraordinary stress. What I want to say is, he knows what he's doing. He's going to endure all this, take all this upon himself in order to save people like you and me so that we don't face God's punishment, God's judgment upon us for the things that we've done wrong, for our rebellion. He knows what he's going to do and he knows what it's going to cost him. And in the moment of extreme stress, he says, I'll still do it. Now, I want to suggest it's worth trusting a man like that who taught that we should serve one another and yet served you and me in the most extraordinary way by dying, by enduring God's judgment so you and I can live forever being forgiven. Did you hear the heartbreaking story last month of Carrie Declan? I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, This is a very sad story. In April of this year, Carrie Declan and her husband were given two shocking bits of news. One, she had brain cancer, a huge tumor in her brain that, unless it was treated immediately, would kill her within a few months. Secondly, she was pregnant with their sixth child, So they have a choice. We have chemotherapy, and we try and treat the cancer so that uh, Carrie can live. But the chemo would definitely kill the baby. Or we keep going with the pregnancy as long as possible, hopefully bring the baby to term with the sure knowledge that Carrie will die within a few months. That is a miserable choice. Well, she and her husband, whatever you make of it, for whatever reason, they decided we'll carry on through with the pregnancy. And so on the 24th of September, baby Lynn was born. And her mother, Carrie, died of cancer six days later. And tragically, the baby born prematurely died a week after that. That is a miserable story. But you and I can look upon that or read about that and think... Uh, we recognize there's something quite wonderful in that mother's devotion. I mean, who knows what our chances would have been with chemo, but there's no, it's noble. It's brave. It's right. We'd like to think we'd do something similar, a mother for a child. We recognize it's noble. It's a good thing. Do you see what Jesus did is much greater than that. He fully knew what he was going to endure. And it wasn't just a physical death. It was a taking into himself the sin, the the punishment for all that had done wrong 
by humanity throughout the generations. And we can recognize, oh, that's impressive. That's a good man. But that is a man worth trusting. And of course, more than the tragedy of Carrie Declan, his sacrifice is effective. It works, if I can put it in really crude terms. His death, for all that we've done wrong, means that we can live forever with him in glory if we trust in him. You can trust this man. So look, there's just a start. It's just a start. Can I trust Jesus? Oh, you can certainly trust he's a figure of history. There's no one credible who disagrees on that. You can trust his knowledge of humanity. Unlike the rest of us, he's God. (laughs) He's not just fixed at one cultural moment in history with its values. He sees everything, the end from the beginning. And you can trust him with his life. Sorry, you can trust him with your life. Because he gave his life for yours. You can trust him with his eternity. Because he rose again. You can trust this man. And so keep trusting him wherever you're at as a Christian. Or if you're not yet there, can I encourage you? Do take him seriously. There's no one like him who'll give his life for you in that way. You can trust this one. Let me lead us in prayer. Great God and Father, again, we want to thank you for not leaving us in doubt that we can trust Jesus Christ. Would we trust, of course, the evidence for his life, his values? But more acutely, would we personally put our trust in him and say, the only way I can be safe, the only way I can be secure for eternity is by trusting in you, the one who gave his life for me. Amen.